Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The following podcast contains a bit of explicit material, but much, much more that is not explicit, just as a percentage. It's Monday, March 21st, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. The war in Ukraine is horrible, by which we mean things like the bombing of hospitals or theaters marked with children inside or all manner of civilian centers. But as horribly as it is going for the humans of Ukraine, it is actually going worse than that for the Russians. Conservative estimates, as reported by the New York Times, show that 7,000 Russian soldiers, and they're almost all soldiers, have been killed. 7,000. Now, For some perspective, the U.S. suffered 4,431 total deaths in the Iraq war that's killed in action and non-hostile, and 2,401 U.S. military deaths in Afghanistan. So rounded up, it's 7,000. In a month, Russia has lost more of its sons than the U.S. lost sons and daughters in 20 years of war, 40 if you count the 20 years of each of those conflicts. In terms of gains, the Russians have not much to show for what they've done, whereas the U.S., at a significant cost, did topple two governments. One of them has stayed toppled to this day. This is not a comparison meant to say, hey, the U.S. didn't do that poorly, just the opposite. We know the U.S. did poorly, and the cost proved too much for America to bear. But of course, America is run by Americans, and Russia is run by Putin, whose means of propaganda are, like his means of warfare, more bludgeoning. There's not something special about the number 7,000. More than 7,000 died over a three-day period in Gettysburg, one battle. So far in Ukraine, it's likely that the real number of Russians who've been killed is actually closer to 10,000, that at least according to the credible Western media accounts that I've seen. But to get a sense for the Russians, which is to say Putin's disregard for life, dwell on the comparison. The U.S. bled out over 20 years and could not take it. Putin, by all accounts, will not even acknowledge it. The disregard for life... Russian life, of course, other lives, hints at what we see is his willingness to kill civilians. But when I consider the number of 7,000 over 20 years versus 20-something days, it actually gives me a new insight. The insight isn't just, oh, look how horrible he is. The insight is this. A part of Putin's folly seemed to me that he didn't understand an obvious modern truth of warfare. In the 21st century, great powers cannot keep and hold territory. How did he not get this message from the U.S. involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan? How did he not see the counterinsurgencies don't work? Now I see how he sees. The numbers tell us how he sees. 
he dismisses the U.S. experience as totally different from his own. We called it shock and awe, but we could not pay the toll of even 200 lives a year on average in Iraq, 100 in Afghanistan. He will throw double that many bodies onto the pyre and do so without remorse or even reflection, 200 in a day. I believe to Putin the lesson wasn't that a great power couldn't hold a territory. It was that the U.S. was not a great power. It was a once great power that had gone soft and didn't have the will that Putin does. You know, in a way, I'm sorry to take the time to note this on this day because Katanji Brown Jackson, after suffering through some senatorial bloviating, emerged with poise to introduce herself to the Judiciary Committee and the American people today. I agree with Cory Booker, who spoke of the joy he found in her not normal nomination. Those were his words. It is not normal for someone like Katanji Brown Jackson to be nominated for the Supreme Court, not normal in a good way. But the reason that I wanted to get to the story of the 7,000 dead instead of the happier, potentially happier story of Katanji Brown Jackson is that I knew it wouldn't last. The number was reported on Thursday, and I knew that it would soon be eclipsed and even doubled. And in fact, as I was recording this, Edward Luce of the Financial Times has tweeted out that over 9,000 Russians have been killed in less than a month. Over 9,000. It's just indicative of how much more suffering Ukraine and Russia will be put through. On the show today, a college swimmer making huge news, or depending on your media silo, just a ripple in the water. But first, for a decade, Frank Bruni was a columnist for the New York Times, whose remit was the politics of culture. He still writes a weekly newsletter for them. But now he does so from a remove as a resident of North Carolina and a teacher at Duke University. This newfound perspective came with a loss of perspective, literally. Bruni was afflicted with damage to his optic nerve, affecting his vision in one eye and potentially imperiling it in both. His new memoir is The Beauty of Dusk on Vision Lost and Found. Frank Bruni up next. Frank Bruni's new memoir, The Beauty of Dusk on Vision, Lost and Found, is what I think of as a vespertine memoir. Dusk is just such an interesting time in the gloaming, the crepuscular. Hear all the words I'm using? Dusk words are really evocative, and the idea of dusk is also evocative. And dusk was thrust upon Frank Bruni, as he will tell us, when he woke up one morning and there was a little bit of vision loss, which he didn't even recognize immediately in one of his eyes. It led him to a journey where he thought about things slipping away and the diminishment of connection and sight. And here he is today. Frank, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So you did wake up one day and thought you had a smudge on your glasses <laughs> among, among the different things you thought, but it was not that. You know, cut to given the proper diagnosis, you had what? Uh, I have this very rare thing called, uh, goes by the initials N-A-I-O-N, and it basically means I had a stroke of the optic nerve that, that frazzled, ravaged, killed off one of my optic nerves and thus the vision in that eye. 
And there's a, first you heard 40, then you heard 20% chance that this would afflict both eyes and you'd be blind. Yeah. And I live uh, probably to this day. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of disagreement or rather just kind of we don't know about this condition because it's rare because because it has not attracted an enormous amount of research. But um, I probably live with a 15 to 20 percent chance that this will happen in my other eye, which are good odds in my favor. But the stakes are pretty huge because if it happens in the other eye and if it happens in a severe manifestation, I find myself legally blind. Is the vision out of your afflicted eye, can, how do you describe it? I mean, there are probably many ways to describe it, and I read a bunch of them in the book, but for someone listening, what would you say? Well, it's it's like there's a thick fog, and I can make out the contours of objects. Um, I can, if you know, if I'm not on a busy street and there's nothing, uh, nothing in my way, I mean, I can walk down the street with my left eye closed just using my right eye, but I would probably step in something. But what's really weird about it is... Um, in a lot of manifestations of this particular condition, what you lose is peripheral vision in the affected eye. I lost central vision. So if I try to read or look at a computer screen with just my right eye, I see just a white wash of light or, or a gray wash of light. I see nothing. I see no letters, no details. It's useless. Wow. So this is one of the ways that it makes you feel vulnerable. Peripheral vision means that you're prey, right? Rabbits have their <laughs> eyes on the side of their heads, whereas predators, ravens, have their eyes right in the middle. That, that, that is zoologically <laughs> true. I have, I have read that and I am fascinated by Trying that. Trying to comfort you with that, zoolo yeah. some zoological facts. I mean, yeah. I have to be a lot more careful when I do things like drive because when I mean, people live full lives with, with what's called monocular as opposed to binocular vision, um, and that's what I essentially have is monocular vision, but you do lose um, you do lose the ability, the fine grained ability to do where objects are in relation to each other. You lose some depth of field, um, and so right. while I can legally drive and I'm not doing anything reckless or wrong, I have to be a lot more attentive and careful. I was never a good parallel parker. Now I would not trust myself to parallel park ever. So if we're ever together in the car, you are taking over the wheel to parallel park for us. Luckily you moved out of New York City where that is basically a requirement for driving life. Yes, I have a two-car garage for my one car, so I've got a huge margin for error when I pull in and pull out. <laughs> there are two ways you could go with that. You could get a Hummer to fill up the whole <laughs> the garage, or you could just give yourself leeway on each side. There you do go. You have, do you have a little, you know, do you have a little um, either visual cue or something to tell you in the garage where to, where to aim for? Yeah, I do. I can't even describe it, but it, that's a really, really uh, intuitive and smart question because it strikes at something kind of bigger and deeper, which is that you do find all of these workarounds. You know, one of the yeah. one of the one of the main messages, themes of the book, one of the themes of my journey in the four and a half years since this happened to me, is I have learned both through my own life um, and through interviews that I've done with other people and the portraits that I write in the book, I have learned that we are so incredibly good as human beings at finding these little workarounds, these adaptations. We are so much nimbler cognitively uh, and we are we are so much more resilient than we realize. Um, and, and you see that when circumstances finally call upon you to find these workarounds, this nimbleness, et cetera. Right. Because people who were born monocular and don't maybe 
can have an intellectual understanding of what it is to be binocular will routinely say, not just I don't notice it, it's almost hard for me to think about what it would mean to be binocular. Uh, I remember there was this uh, receiver for the New York Jets named Wesley Walker, who was mm, great. Yeah. He was great at yeah. over-the-shoulder catches. And part of it, they said, I read, I think it was probably a Gerald Eskenazi piece in the Times, they really plotted it out, how it worked. And you would think that, well, if this is an advantage, then everyone in the NFL should wear an eye patch <laughs> if they go on go routes. But it's not. It's just exactly what you said. The adaptability of the human species is amazing. And we should probably recognize that not just for, you know, physical, let's say, defects, but other habits of mind as well. We should. And we should recognize that, I think, in particular, uh, as we confront aging, right? So as you said at the beginning, the name of the book is The Beauty of Dusk, and Dusk serves a lot of different functions there. But part of it is about the kind of arc of the human day, right? And I think a lot of us fear aging um, because we know that with aging comes the loss of certain potencies or the threat of the loss of certain potencies. And I think that when you have something like this happen to you earlier in life, like I did, I was, I was 52, um, it is unideal. It is a challenge. It is a setback. It does make my life harder. I am less scared of aging than ever because I've seen through this sort of accelerated, advanced early course in aging um, that I'm going to be able, because of human resilience, because of intellectual dexterity, that sort of thing, I'm going to be able to meet some of these physical challenges uh, much, much more ably than I would have imagined. Well, I think of two things when you say that. I think of Michael Kinsley, who you mentioned in his book, as having written a memoir where, you know, because he has Parkinson's and he's a very, very important person in my career, but uh, because he has Parkinson's, he positioned himself as someone who got to know what it was like to feel old before he was actually old, uh, a generational canary in a coal mine, which is really interesting. I want to note that. But when you say you no longer feel fear aging and you think societally we do. You're a man who wrote not one but two columns about how Joe Biden was too old to be president. Correct. Reflecting on Joe Biden's age now and how it might affect him and how it might affect us as his uh, citizens, but you know, the presidency is elevated to more of like a, his subjects, his children. What do you think was... On the one hand, were you too harsh? On the other hand, we are seeing the effects of someone who is the age he is. So um, was I too harsh? Yes, probably. But and I kind of own up to this in the book, as you know, and I, and I talk about I talk about aging in terms of the Washington gerontocracy, you know, Tony Fauci, Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, all at the zenith of their careers, all like in late 70s, early 80s. Um, when I wrote the two, you didn't mention Mitch McConnell. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, he's not my paradigm or my paragon or my whatever <laughs> ideal. Um, but I, no, I don't think I was too old. The columns I wrote saying that Joe Biden was too old was when he was a candidate, and my position was the Democratic Party needs to elect someone who will for sure beat Donald Trump because we are in danger if Donald Trump gets a second term. And if you look at history, if you look at who Democrats like to vote for, et cetera, um, Joe Biden from an age perspective perspective was not the safest bet as the Democratic nominee. Now, that said, I think he, in retrospect, I think he won that nomination um, in part because of his age. Joe Biden is a man who ran twice previously for the presidency. And because of his rashness, because of his intemperateness, because of his um, lack of discipline when it came to the way he spoke, the way he ran a campaign, all of that, he failed in his two previous attempts. I think he won the third time out, when I'm talking about the Democratic nomination, 
in part because of qualities that come with aging. I think he had a steadiness and a discipline that he lacked as a younger man, that in his case, I mean, some people have that discipline when they're younger, but in his case, I think the fruits of aging redounded to his benefit. Um, But it works in a lot of different ways. I mean, right now, I'm grateful for his age and experience when it comes to his uh, restraint thus far in escalating what's happening between Ukraine and Russia, you know, and beginning a wider war. On the other hand, it's not ideal in the sense that I know that some Americans see him at a microphone. And because he doesn't seem as vibrant and commanding as he might do to age, that gives them pause. So it works in a lot of different ways. It does. He certainly is less excitable. I agree with your assessment. The most important thing was that he'd be a reasonable person who wasn't Trump. Let me restate that, that he'd be a person who wasn't Trump, who was also reasonable. <laughs> yeah. That would be my... But I do feel it's largely unfair. And what uh, conservatives will say, they'll never give a person like that a break. But, you know, just yesterday on my show, I played tape of him and Nancy Pelosi trying to explain inflation and their difficulties of just articulating what were pretty good points, but at some points, at some point, points that actually weren't good. And so a little bit of uh, silver tonguedness would have helped them. It, it, they just ran into a roadblock. And I felt a little bit bad for generally policies I favor and the ability to sell those and get those through. And the very important part of just inspiring Americans and say, we got this. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. Neither one of them is the most effective communicator in the world, even um, and I don't know, it's hard to say how much right now age has to do with that or not. But um, uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I, I, I'm thinking back to the campaign. I think one of the reasons, for example, um, that Pete Buttigieg had the run he did early in the campaign um, is the man is just so verbally dexterous, it's scary. I mean, I've, I've met him, I know him, I've talked to him. I mean, he speaks off the cuff with a with an eloquence and a precision that the rest of us could only dream about. Um, right. You know, would that everybody in public life was like that. But that said, um, that kind of communication really works for me and really impresses me. There are a lot of Americans who see that as inherently... Um, inauthentic or as suspicious. There are a lot of Americans who prefer a much more kind of fractured everyday explanation or or communication because that feels to them less pompous, more real. So everybody's different in that regard. So I want to ask you about the part of uh, being a citizen of the world that worries you, as it does with me and probably everyone listening. Um, the war in Ukraine is the latest. Global warming is the background noise that's always the potential catastrophe. And I also find it frustrating because I do know the media has the tendency to overhype. And yet in this case, it seems like the hype is absolutely correct. And then you just have, you know, our perhaps threatened state of democracy. So here's my question. When you were, a, when you were in the newsroom, did you feel like you could... Did you feel like you had greater agency or control over all that stuff that you could perhaps make a difference beyond just commenting on it? I would love to say yes, but the answer is not really. And that's because of some of the very dynamics that you just alluded to, right? I am concerned with everything you mentioned, and I'm also concerned, really concerned, um, with the kind of state of our information ecosystem and with partisanship. So Um, I didn't necessarily feel like I had more effect uh, or the ability to influence more because I think most people consume media today in a way um, that their mind isn't open and their mind isn't changed. Um, Mm -hmm. I have, you know, during the Trump years when I was writing 
twice weekly columns for the Times and like many columnists writing a lot about Trump. Um, I probably people said it must be hard to be a journalist in this moment because you're so vilified by Trump and fake news. It was actually I've never felt more support. But what people would say isn't like you've illuminated me or you've educated me. They would say you've articulated how I feel. Um, I feel, and this is largely due to the kind of dynamics of social media and the internet, I think we've lost our talent for and our tolerance of nuance, right? Nobody sees in shades of gray anymore. Um, I wrote about this in my farewell column and said one of the great dissatisfactions I had as a columnist, one of the ways in which the job never really kind of fit me snugly, was it required, it required me, or at least if I wanted clicks, um, to be decisive and emphatic and certain in a way that wasn't always consistent with what with what I was really feeling inside or to, or to my thinking wasn't really consistent with the complexity of the situation or the complexity of the truth. Um, I teach journalism, yeah, but I kind of also teach like media and ideas. And I always say to my students, like, I want you to ask smarter questions. And I want you to think about what you don't know, not what you know. Like, I want you to leave this classroom and not feel like what you came in believing you have just gotten more artillery for and more ammunition for. I want you to have new questions um, about what you came in believing. And I want you to realize like one thing above all others, the phrase you will hear me say most often in class, and it's true, is it's complicated. You know, it strikes me again, I think before before we started taping, I said, I don't know you, but I feel like I know you. It seems like you're having a great, let's call it a retirement. <laughs> At a time when you lost a large portion of your vision and you went through a bad breakup and you ceased becoming a regular columnist for the Times, though you still do have this ability to put out work. I mean, just from listening to you and reading your memoir, it seems like you're doing, and in the face of, you know, everything we face in 2022, when there are all these deaths of despair and so much, it seems like you're doing pretty well. Well, are you? Do you, yes, do you I feel am. that yeah, way? Yes, I am. And I, I want to say thank you for saying that, but, uh, but I am. I mean, as you said, I mean, I'm super concerned as we talk right now about the state of the world. And I don't mean that sounds like a really kind of reflexive cliched thing. But I mean, you know, when, like, like I think everyone probably is listening when I wake up every morning and, and read the latest about what's happening in, in, in Ukraine, I mean, I, I, I feel despair um, and I feel yes. enormous concern about where this all goes. Taking that out of the equation, um, I was, uh, I'm 57, so I'm not retired, and I actually still work a crazy amount because I teach a full load at Duke University. I'm a professor there now. Um, I probably give the Times about 15 hours a week, and then, you know, with the book, I've been doing a lot of talking about the book. That said, I was so ready for a different pace and kind of life, for a kind of gentleness in my life. I left Manhattan. I live in a wooded neighborhood of Chapel Hill. Right before we began our conversation, I took my usual four-mile walk in the woods with, with Regan, my dog. Um, I have, I have, and I do credit my medical odyssey with this. Credit is a weird verb, but I do have a, a connection or reconnection or appreciation of certain really simple pleasures that I don't think are simple at all. And I get such, I get joy from such readily accessible things that I let pass by me and wash over me before. Um, and that is a result of the kind of emotional, psychological, even spiritual journey I've been on since, since I lost part of my eyesight. 
The name of the book is The Beauty of Dusk on Vision, Lost, and Found. Frank Bruni is the author. He also does a subscription column for the New York Times and has written so eloquently over the years about Rome, food, politics, identity. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you, Frank. Thank you. My pleasure. And now the spiel. Here is how this week's Sports Illustrated story begins. Fresh off her final practice of the week, the most controversial athlete in America sat in the corner of a nearly empty Philadelphia coffee house with her back to the wall. Most controversial. For some, her name will be meaningless. But for others who don't recognize names like Kyrie Irving, Ben Simmons, or Devontae Adams, Leah Thompson rings a bell and presses buttons. SI describes the University of Pennsylvania swimmer as, quote, one of the most dominant college athletes in the country, and as a result, the center of a national debate, a living, breathing, real-time Rorschach test for how society views those who challenge conventions. The ones who know Leah, who've heard the name on Fox, who've seen those segments on Tucker, or just who read with interest in the Philadelphia Inquirer, Rorschach test is definitely not the way to put it. Rorschach tests have no meaning. They're designed to be ambiguous. Leah's critics, or critics of the NCAA that allowed a transgendered woman to swim as a woman, do not believe the human body is a Rorschach test. They don't believe that there is ambiguity in what constitutes a man versus a woman. Now, there are others who loathe Tucker Carlson, who don't want to see themselves as in any way anti-trans, who support the right of women to be women if they identify as women in nearly all aspects of life, in clothes and dress and bathrooms and pronouns. These people subscribe to the idea that trans people should enjoy acceptance, even better, respect by others, but then their sports. And not recreational sports, highly competitive sports, sports that decide scholarships worth tens of thousands of dollars, that at the highest level, the level in which Leah Thomas competes, sports that can confer the status of Olympic champion, can define legacies or careers. When it comes to sports at this level, fairness is a virtue that must be reckoned with. And the respect or acceptance or even admiration that we should give to a transgender person should be balanced against the fairness we give To all the other women, the vast majority of the women who depend on institutions that are the arbiters of fairness to stand up for them too. Leah Thomas, before her transition, was a good male swimmer. This season, she was great. And at the NCAA championship on Tuesday in Atlanta, she was more than great. She was the best woman in the 500 meters in America. Here at the end of this race, Thomas starting to pull away. The bell. It's Leah Thomas moving away from Emma Wyatt. Brooke 40 into third. Wyatt right up there against that lane line. She's having a great race here, and she's going to get second. That will give her a lot of confidence. Remember, she's just a freshman. Leah Thomas pulling away over the final 150 meters. Thomas would go on to win by more than a second and a half over second place finisher Emma Wyant 
who, as you heard the announcer say, was only a freshman. True, but she and third place finisher Erica Sullivan and fourth place finisher Brooke Forty, they were also Olympians, silver medalists at the Tokyo Olympics. In fact, Thomas had beaten the best America had to offer in women's swimming, thereby establishing herself as the very best women's swimmer in America at the 500. The time didn't lie. Leah Thomas didn't cheat. She followed the rules that the NCAA laid out. She did 12 months of hormone replacement therapy and had her testosterone monitored to within the NCAA-defined acceptable levels. When asked about this, the greatest swimmer in U.S. history, Michael Phelps had this to say. There has to be a level playing field. I think that's something that, that we all need um, because it's, it, like, that's what sports are. Uh, and, and for me, um, I, I don't know where this is going to go. I don't know um, what's going to happen. Um, I, I believe that we all should feel comfortable with who we are in our own skin. Um, but I think sports should all be played at an even playing field. I don't know what that looks like in the future. Um, but it's, 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 it's hard. It is. And critics of Phelps and transgender activists were hard on Phelps for his answer. He imperfectly tried to answer an extremely tough, if not impossible, question. Today, NBC published an essay by Cheryl Cookie, Purdue University Professor of American Studies and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. Headline, we should be celebrating Leah Thomas like we did Jackie Robinson. It would be charitable to call an analogy to Jackie Robinson merely imperfect. Maybe it's more like insulting. In this essay, Cookie argues, quote, there is a lack of scientific evidence that conclusively demonstrates a direct link between testosterone and athletic performance. Cookie links to a Scientific American article about myths relating to intersex athletes, not one like Thomas, who went through male puberty and as such experienced the testosterone benefits of height, lung capacity, skeletal size, etc., To take a non-technical distinction, one that everyone will get, Leah Thomas is six feet, two inches tall. The average male Olympic swimmer is six feet, two inches tall. The average female Olympian is five foot nine. Leah Thomas is in fact taller than the tallest female Olympic medalist, Kate Campbell from Australia in the 2021 games. Thomas didn't win because she's tall. She was a fine, fine swimmer pre-transition without a big height advantage on her NCAA rivals. But to say the effects of testosterone didn't help her against her competitors who didn't go through male puberty calls into question your credibility overall. But the credibility of the anti-Leah press should also be called into question, more even than that essay by the Purdue professor. The Daily Mail of the UK and the New York Post and other conservative outlets, Fox, made sure that Thomas's example was known. A picture of the second through fourth place finishers in the 500 celebrating without Leah was displayed as proof that those three opposed or resented Thomas. This was just a picture taken of three Olympic teammates who knew each other beforehand and were friends. In fact, absolutely the most inspiring thing that I took away from the entire weekend were the public statements of number three and number four finishers, Erica Sullivan and Brooke Forty. Sullivan wrote, quote, As a woman in sports, I can tell you that I know what the real threats to women's sports are. Sexual abuse and harassment, unequal pay and resources, and a lack of women in leadership. Transgender girls and women are nowhere on this list. Women's sports are stronger when all women, including trans women, are protected from discrimination and free to be their true selves. And Forty issued a statement that said, quote, I believe that treating people with respect and dignity is more important than any trophy 
trophy or record will ever be, which is why I will not have a problem racing against Leah at NCAAs this year. Still, Google the names of these great swimmers, Thompson, Wyant, Sullivan, and Forty, and you will see the picture, three of them together, one of them apart. The headlines on Fox News and all the conservative sites portray it as a snub when they know full well that those statements of support from two of the three swimmers that Thomas beat out were issued beforehand and widely circulated. Thomas didn't speak to any media or do any press conferences during the NCA meet, with one exception. After exiting the pool with the title, she submitted to the customary Q&A with the sideline reporter. You've undoubtedly been under the spotlight over the past few months. How have you been dealing with that and reasoning with everything? I try to ignore it as much as I can. I try to focus on my swimming, uh, what I need to do to get ready for my races, and just try to block out everything else. What did that race mean to you? It's, it means the world to, to be here, be with two of my best friends and teammates, and be able to compete. In the future, even though more people will, no doubt, be transitioning, it may be harder for one to switch divisions from male to female. The NCAA mandated that Thompson undergo 12 months of hormone replacement therapy, but quickly changed the rule to be 36 months. Plus, the pandemic allowed for a year away from competition for her to undergo medical interventions. It could be a unique circumstances. I don't have to have an opinion on everything, right? You know that. On this, I'm conflicted. There are bad arguments dismissing science as not science, as we heard from supporters like Cookie. There is a cruelty to the Daily Mail-esque outrage. In between, caught in between, these two polarities of intense finger-pointing are athletes with real grace, like Sullivan and Forty. But notice that second-place finisher Emma Wyant stayed silent. I can't critique her. Is her stance backward? Is her stance graceless? Is it understandable? Is it obviously correct? <laughs> At lower levels, I think sports is about participating in sports, and a transgendered athlete should not be barred. At the highest levels, we must acknowledge that the competing values of fairness and acceptance are legitimate. Each of them are compelling, and dismissing the other as bad faith is ignorant or opportunistic. I also doubt that there'll be a spate of trans women winning every swim meet. I don't think this represents the potential destruction of women's sports, because if enough transgender women crowd the podium, then we could just have a trans women's division. And even if one trans woman dominates in the 500, as Thomas did, she was still beaten in the finals of the other races she competed in. I know that Leah Thomas did nothing wrong, absolutely nothing wrong. And I also know that I cannot criticize Emma Wyant if she felt that the rules needed to protect her more. But I'm thinking most of the third and fourth place finishers, Sullivan and Forty, and I just hope that they look at their bronze medal and non-medal and hold that accomplishment and everything it implies as dear as all the golds that they have won and will win in the future. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is The Gist's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the aquatic director of Peachfish Productions. I will read you an ad now from Indeed.com for aquatic director. 
One, inspects and helps maintain pool cleanliness. Two, knowledge of pool chemicals and filter operations. Three, ability to lift a victim from the pool. Victim, we've already conceded there will be a victim. Good job, Michelle. The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Check out advertisecast.com slash the gist. Um, Umpru, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.